and welcome to the Siemens Security by Design podcast. I'm your host, Lee Harrison, Product Marketing Director for the Tessent Safety and Security product line within Siemens EDA. Our aim with this podcast series is to explore the world of safety and security requirements and technology for IC design. I'll be talking to experts from all over the globe who are deeply involved from both a technology and a research perspective, giving you a truly unfiltered view on what we are doing and what we need to do to make IC safe and secure for critical applications. Today, my guest is Siraj Sheikh, Professor from System Security at Swansea University in Wales, also Director of CyberOwl, a marine security technology provider and Chair of the Cybersecurity Stream at the GAAC, the Global Automotive Advisory Council. I first met Siraj as part of the security design project looking into hardware-based automotive cybersecurity for automotive connected vehicles and building a proof of concept demonstrator managed and funded by the Innovate UK. Following on from that, Siraj is also involved in a number of other projects focused on real-world deployment of these technologies. Hi, Siraj. Hi, Lee, and uh, thank you for having me here. It's good to talk to you again. Let me kick off with probably the biggest question on everybody's mind when we talk about autonomous vehicles. Are we ever going to see level five self-driving cars, or is the challenge just too much for the technology? Especially when experts like Elon Musk are saying that, for example, it's easier to probably put a rocket into Mars than create a safe, secure driving car. That's a great question to start us off, Lee. Thank you. My motto is never say never. But certainly the realities of self-driving vehicles, that level of autonomy that we want to achieve and that is glamorized in the media and and fantasized about it, you know, at so many different levels, that is proving to be remarkably difficult. There are questions also around the kind of regulation and legislation around it, particularly around what happens if there is an accident and, and accidents are something that are a fact of life. Then in terms of that level of liability and ownership and responsibility is something that that needs to be negotiated and agreed, and that's remarkably complex. I say that from a also for, for, from a machine learning AI perspective as well, but also software liability perspective. I think the wider question then also is that there are competing priorities in terms of electrification, in terms of connectivity, and in terms of the economics and the supply chain kind of challenges around automotive in general and mobility you know, more widely. Whether the industry, whether policy, whether the consumer space would choose to lean over to some of those other priorities over a self-driving, completely self-driving vehicle, that's something to be seen. So I think there are those competing pressures as well. well one final, final point really is whether there are certain use cases where that reality could be realized initially and perhaps is most efficient. So we talk about last mile delivery, we talk about first mile, we talk about various public transport kind of you know use cases where a, an autonomous form of mobility could be realized for far more benefit, far more easier as well in far more controlled fashion perhaps, you know, and addressing those earlier challenges that I mentioned. And that could be perhaps a way to pivot us into more wider autonomy. But all I'm saying is, is that there are some immediate challenges, there are some competing priorities, and there are some long-standing kind of commercial economic issues 
that make the whole value proposition of an autonomy perhaps not as appealing. So there are those things to be seen as to how they develop. We've done quite a lot of work together on the, in terms of security, especially around connected vehicles. So where do you think the priority of security sits within this whole question of self-driving vehicles? Is that, is that one of the priorities or is that low down the list? Are we in a position where the, the security technology is, is good enough or do you think the security technology is going to be lagging behind the functional technology? Let's start with security in general. is still relatively new as a challenge in the automotive industry, relatively speaking. I think there are a couple of factors that would drive this. One is the awareness of security amongst the consumer space, as there are more in-cabin technologies, but also off-platform services through uh, uh, apps uh, or through online services that allow users to get more value out of their whole mobility experience there potentially could be threats and risks coming out of it that, as the users are more aware of, I think that would push up security on the shopping list. And two, also as the industry becomes more mature, but also I think the the standards, the recent standards and regulation that have been proposed in this space, as that becomes more operational and online, there is no doubt that with the increasing digitization of a number of elements of the automotive platform, that the industry, I think, would become much more mature, but also push security up the value chain. And I say that with the viewpoint that security as such isn't necessarily a value proposition yet. It's still a risk that needs to be addressed. It's still something that is being understood. It is still something that a lot of companies aren't confident enough. A lot of them are doing a great job, but many aren't necessarily confident enough. And also the visibility around as to how you package it and market it as, as opposed to safety isn't necessarily you know kind of there yet. So as those elements mature, I think security would become much more prominent and visible. And unfortunately, also another potential factor is as we see more threats being realized in this space, and that is the case with security more generally as well, it takes a few big impacts, big, big incidents, big, big cyber attacks realized that the consumers and the industry generally more widely becomes more responsive to that. So I think it'll grow. And... I think it will grow dramatically over the next three to five years. Once again, I say that on the basis that there are a number of attempts at connectivity, the use of software for control, for other kind of safety critical features, and of course, the general digitization element around it, but also, unfortunately, also supply chain elements as well, and where there are issues of trust and so on. So, yeah, I think uh, it would grow. That brings us nicely on to the GAAC. So you're chair of the, the security stream within the GAAC. Explain to us really what the overriding goal of the GAAC is in terms of bringing awareness of security to the wider supply chain and the wider, the wider industry. So the Global Automotive Advisory Council, the GAAC, part of SEMI and SEMI Europe, is a key body that brings together a number of key automotive stakeholders who are particularly focused on the semiconductor 
and the whole hardware kind of enabling of the product here and the, and the manufacturing kind of alongside it as well and wider infrastructure. And so from that perspective, their interest is in the security and safety of both the semiconductor as an enabler itself, and that means its design is its development, but also the manufacturing and the supply chain that is there both upstream and downstream in terms of the offerings that are based on semiconductors. And increasingly, there are many, of course. So the use of semiconductors as such uh, in enabling those, those digitization elements that I mentioned earlier is absolutely critical. And so the challenge there is for the GAC to understand, one, the true life aspects of security, the design, the development, the operational features, you know, when when a vehicle is operational and what that means in, in terms of the features that semiconductor-based kind of applications can offer and so on, and then the post-life kind of decommissioning and management of any silicon. And of course, understanding what our capabilities are, what needs developing in terms of security assurance, in terms of, you know, verification, testing, design, and also understanding what key the geopolitics and the supply chain issues that I mentioned, you know, what key constraints or issues of uh, competition or issues of national security that need to be addressed or understood in that context as well. And finally, also look at other similar sectors and industries for best practices, where, for example, in the telecommunication space, in the consumer electronics space, there are certain verticals where this problem has been better understood so far, and they're ahead of the curve to where we are in GAC. So taking those insights and informing the automotive life cycle with that, the, well, the, the, the semiconductor life cycle in the automotive would be key. So that's the, that's the mission. And of course, uh, I should also add, we welcome with open arms stakeholders and entities across the ecosystem. There are a number of players in this space, people who are who understand at tier one and OEM level, who understand the overall system and what features and what constraints that may drive at that level. People who are, you know, lower down the kind of tiered chain and how they want to uh, resource and package and then integrate those technologies. People who are at an arm's length from this, who are meant to be providing an assurance and uh, type approval and, and enforcement and compliance, kind of checking of standards and so on, and their role as well. And of course, the users as well, because they are interested in every element in terms of, uh, we mentioned security earlier, but when it comes to materials, when it comes to silicon, when it comes to supply chains, you know, where and how and the sustainability of it and all, all of that, that awareness is growing as well. So the GAC is, is welcoming of, um, of a number of those stakeholders to inform this, this journey of ours. From my experience with the GAC, I agree if you look at the number of players that are turning up to the the various the various meetings and getting involved, it really does represent a, a significant cross-section of the whole automotive industry. Everybody from the, the, the OEMs themselves, the tier ones, the, the IP providers, the EDA providers. So I think it has a, an extremely high value because you're getting individuals from every part of the the whole um, semiconductor sector everybody that's that's providing and supplying into 
automotive semiconductors is represented at some level within those those GAAC different work streams. Absolutely. And I think it needs to have the end users equally in the room because whatever security-related changes, shifts that may come about, they have to then be viewed under how viable that is. So a lot of these organizations are for profit as well, and they want to understand whether they'll remain competitive, whether they'll need to establish some partnerships, whether they'll need some extraordinary talent requirements or and above what we see and a number of those issues. And so absolutely, it's a very powerful platform. Uh, My role there as chair is to do two things really primarily. One is to enable that community, grow that community and make sure that all the, you know, the gaps are filled in terms of the representation of the different stakeholders, but also drive an agenda, slow and steady, uh, because a lot of these issues are quite dense. A lot of these issues are quite multidisciplinary as well. We cannot ignore the economics. We cannot ignore the technology. We cannot ignore the regulation and legislation. Uh, we cannot ignore consumer behavior. And all of them are an absolute different, uh, you know, kind of complex areas uh, themselves requiring kind of individual attention, let alone how they can come together. So my agenda is there really to make sure that we, over the next few months and years, get to a point where as a community and as a wider kind of society, we benefit from that deeper understanding and then come to a pre-competitive resolution across industry on a number of those uh, elements, whether they're need for new standards, need for new practices, need for new uh, research and, and all of that together. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about projects. I know we've been involved in some security related projects in the past. What's kind of your latest experiences with with security-based projects around these these connected vehicles? Where are things heading? Kind of what are the challenges? And how do you see things progressing? To give you a flavor of what we're looking at, we at the minute have a few active areas where we are kind of spread out as a team. And I I, I should acknowledge the team. We are, I represent the System Security Group at Sonzi University, where we are a, a small but growing group of people who come together from a mixed background in terms of computer science, electronics, embedded systems, communications, and automotive, focused on aspects of kind of cyber-physical systems. And there are there are three areas that, that are representative of the wider work that we do, that we are currently active in as well. We're looking at 5G and security of 5G, particularly from an open RAN perspective, trying to diversify the supply chain of uh, design and development, but also can then operational kind of stacks of 5G and looking at how we enable dynamic risk assessment around that. So that's a piece of work that we're doing with Toshiba and Thales, funded by the UK government as well. We have a project funded under the Digital Security by Design Initiative in the UK, which is enabling a number of trials using a technology called Cherry, which is enhanced processor architecture and then packaged and delivered as as a prototype by ARM called Morello. And so we're looking at an automotive use case of that. Once again, we're looking at how certain architectural enhancements to overcome some certain memory-based security problems could pose any trade-offs with performance, with safety, in a live driving perspective. We're also 
just starting to uh, work with a consortium, just started on a project working with a consortium to look at a system-level risk assessment around a self-driving shuttle up in Sunderland in the north of England, where your earlier question about the realization of kind of autonomous vehicles, we're doing a trial to see how we could support a almost a nearly commercial service that uh, shuttles people from a couple of points across the city, an actual an actual road trial and live in the city. Across these projects, we one we get a view across the different stacks of technology, where some of this is very low-level component-based kind of developments and refinements, and then looking at assurance around that. Some of it is system-level risk kind of modeling, which is a very different perspective. And that is great because sometimes we see small technical feature-based revisions or enhancements or changes that may have system-level implications. Also, a lot of our focus is around assurance. And so it's not so much about the design development, but it's much more about how we guarantee and, and, and reason and assure in a number of ways for security against the system. And so that assurance means there's a number of modeling and tooling frameworks that we are, are particularly championing and working with. And that just shows us the scale, the complexity of this task. And I think that's very important. I guess I, I emphasize this, that to bring something to the road, as it were, mind the pun, a technology like this, it takes a number of forces to come together and align in the right way. And of course, all of that underpinned by not just technology, but also economics and also legislation, regulation and policy, essentially. So I think this would happen in chunks. This would happen step by step. I think there will be some successes. There will be some failures. And I think it will be a, a longer term kind of a challenge. Just once again, because I mentioned economy, you know, the economic kind of priorities for the country and you know where that investment goes is also something important to consider. So this is where we are, and it's a, a great view from where we are, because there's lots to learn as academic researchers, but it's also enabling those partnerships across industry as well. And as you know, Lee, working with you, we've been able to bring together at different points, different industry players to work on different levels. I think working in a university primarily has that great advantage of independence, that freedom of thought, but also that pre-competitive positioning to bring commercial players together for mutual benefit. It's been a really eye-opening experience for me because certainly embarking on some of these security-based projects, us at Siemens have, have really had to work with, as, as you say, different groups of people that we would not necessarily be involved with in our, our kind of day-to-day -day job delivering semiconductor technology. So it, it's it's far more reaching than traditional type of customer base that we would be used to. You touched a little bit on hardware-based security technology. You talked about the, the the Cherry architecture. Obviously, the big focus within our group at Siemens is IC and, and hardware technology. And, and you've had quite a bit of exposure now to our embedded analytics technology, certainly configured and set up to be used in a, a, a security-type way. How do you see that complementing the whole 
cybersecurity challenge for for these these type of projects? There are a couple of areas where we've had some uh, prior thoughts on this. One is as we grow towards much more regulation in security, the need for the safety critical control and communication systems or enabling systems and data intensive systems as the need for compliance and evidence towards that compliance grows, that technology providing a very low level transparency and understanding of the system is important. And that will play a role. And I think how the test and analytics piece could map onto a number of compliance needs would be a great task for for a different for a different set of verticals. I think so. That's that's the one area. The other area, of course, is that we are increasingly getting better at a number of levels deriving value out of data. And I say data, I, I mean that very loosely in terms of system level characteristics, system level properties, and how they could be articulated and expressed using those data sets that you were able to generate, once again, trying to evaluate those very low-level designs, but also enabling an operational view of those uh, designs. And once again, so how we derive that value out of very low-level configurations of these systems would be great, because that would mean that a number of other applications could open up. So one is that value addition in terms of security, and the earlier point is about more about measuring security and assurance kind of you know envelope around it. Both, I think, are key drivers. And the more the end users upstream could see that or for your technology, the more they'll be able to, with your help, of course, be able to join those dots and get to a point where we could have better informed safety critical secure systems. And this is where I think there is a key need given that regulation push I mentioned, but also that value addition as well. Of course, in the wider context of automotive as well and and other uh, kind of engineering challenges. That's how I see it. We've had the team at the group, we've had firsthand experience of working on use cases with you and we've been able to demonstrate some remarkable insights into this area. And I only wish that we had more time. (laughs) Yeah, that's always the challenge. And talking of time, I mean, obviously the technology is is there, and it, it's it's very good at detecting this kind of security threats, and also being able to mitigate these security threats. But one of the things, as part of the overall integration process, is being able to identify the the potential threats as the initial analysis part of the project. And one of the things that that's very, I guess, obvious to me is that. To be able to do that work, a lot of that initial analysis work is is pretty much done by hand. You require dedicated experts to look at a system, analyze where all the, the different security threats are, and basically list those out to then go and implement your, your security detection and, and mitigation solution. What are your thoughts on, obviously, part of Siemens that I'm, I'm working with is Siemens EDA. We obviously have a huge interest in developing EDA tools to try and automate as much of these problems as, as possible. Given the the kind of what we're hearing about the the worldwide shortage of cybersecurity experts, do you think EDA 
really plays a big part in this this kind of process of doing the analysis part of the the upfront design absolutely i think what you have to acknowledge is that given the challenges of integration that tooling and that capability that you have that has to become part of a wider tool chain and that tool chain is important in terms of enabling more and more mechanization and automation of that security related kind of analysis. And that is still, it's in its relatively early stages. And so how you could enable that, how you could find those tool chains and perhaps map onto those for different verticals, that would be something, a key step. The project we did is essentially a step into the automotive industry and how perhaps we work with tier one, tier twos to kind of you know work uh, across those tool chains and so on. The other thing uh, I, I will go back to more regulation compliance needs. And as these standards are emerging, some of them for sure would have cybersecurity cases that would need some reference to the kind of analysis that you could provide to offer that assurance, that guarantee that at a low level, these systems behave in a certain way. And we're able to kind of articulate that and evidence that uh, and so on. And I, I guess taking a step back, the other challenge, of course, also is that certainly in the areas that I've worked in, the hardware threats are, I wouldn't say are new, but perhaps do not get as much attention as they should, perhaps do not get as much of a, a forensic explanation as they should, because that is only part of it. As that becomes more and more visible, it should enable organizations like yourself to articulate the value that you provide. So there's a little bit of work to be done in terms of how you translate your technology and capability for those use cases. And once again, going back to the SecureCab project that we did, that was exactly that objective, is to demonstrate that you know use case in the automotive area. So I guess we need more activity like that and perhaps more follow-on activity to mature, not just the use case in the demonstration of that capability, but also to perhaps offer a a kind of a solution which integrates into that tool chain for OEMs and tier ones in their integration cycle. You talk about the fact that kind of hardware threats are are still very much in their their infancy compared to some of the more advanced attacks we see in the in the software domain. I think if we look at how the overall cybersecurity market is predicted to grow, I think, I mean, at the moment, I think it sits at around about $155 billion and is, is predicted to grow to, to $376 billion by, by 2029. I certainly think that we're, we're going to have our work cut out in terms of making sure that we're, we're properly covered, we have the right technologies in place, and we also see that there's a this 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 whole discussion around not having enough engineers and not having the right experts in place and and obviously you're in a prime position being in academia to to try and help address that challenge well, what do you, what do you see in the uh, in, in the academic space are you seeing a huge amount of new graduates coming through what what is the what is the interest level in, in cybersecurity from a, from a student perspective? Lee, in terms of both ends of the pipeline, there is growing interest. Students are increasingly taking notice of cybersecurity 
and are wanting to embark on a profession in that kind of direction, employers and recruiters on the other end are also very mindful and very, I should say, active, it's the right word, at the other end of the pipeline and making sure that the graduate that are channeling in are then finding their way into the market. And that's great. That's healthy. That's, I think, is going to grow and sustain. I think the only consideration here is how other, once again, competing areas like AI, photonics, quantum, blockchain, maybe some of those other key areas, how they may drive that uh, hype and, you know, that demand, which may deflect or distract some of this pipeline. But regardless, I think, you know, security has a good level of interest and, and a pipeline and a number of good programs provisioning solid security kind of, you know, education. But all of these aspects are still in flux. And I think there'll be more we'll see as the demand grows. But there's one thing which is very important. And let's take a step back which I think is particularly relevant to your question and the earlier question as well, is what I find in industry, particularly the engineering organizations, do not necessarily have a good handle, and justifiably so, of the level of effort and cost it takes across that design and development lifecycle. Because a lot of security analysis and design could be iterative. It could open up and expose aspects of design or implementation, which means that suddenly you embark on a project with a certain finite resource and timeline that opens up into a completely new set of tasks that you have to then overcome as well because they become part of your business. And so in a sense, that is a big challenge as to how they can estimate and monitor and track that cost and effort deployed to delivering a particular set of tasks is, is, is part of this life cycle. And so if there is more and more maturity around tooling and the automation of a lot of those tasks, design tasks, I think that would help, particularly that segment of the market who would then have some assurance as to they could rely on established kind of a cycle of design and development and testing to give them that that confidence that you know we are able to rely on tool-based automation. And that gives them a much more finite, hopefully a solid fixed picture of, of the cost and effort. And I think once again, the consideration is the economic consideration. In a sense, organizations like yours could show how they could offset a lot of that human in kind of intensive labor into a structured tool chain, then the better it gets for organizations upstream to then manage their work. Yeah, I mean, that's a, an ongoing journey, I think. And it will, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a push, but there'll also be a pull from uh, stakeholders upstream. We kind of see the same. And, and certainly from a development perspective, we boil things down from an automotive market, we boil things down into four kind of key investment areas. So we have our, our quality, and this is pretty well understood, making sure that the semiconductors that are manufactured, especially for the automotive market, have an extremely high quality level. So they're coming out of the factory with essentially zero defects. 
Then we've got our in-system tests. So looking at the safety aspect, making sure that throughout the whole life cycle, and you mentioned this before about the fact that people are now looking into the and requiring information on the, the life cycle of the silicon, being able to test that silicon throughout its whole life within the vehicle and within the system. So we've got all of our in-system test technology there. And then probably the two newer areas for us uh, are the security by design. So how how do we couple the aspects of safety, which again, you've already said reasonably well understood and people have a really pretty good handle on how to deal with safety. How do we roll security into that and how how connected are the safety and security aspects? So there's that part of it. And then I guess the final part of where we see our investment is in the reliability. So not only do we have to make sure that the products are 100% good coming out of the factory, we're able to test them throughout their, their whole life and make sure that they, they stay good and make sure that if something does happen, we can identify it, making sure that they're secure and also look at the reliability. So making sure that as silicon ages, I mean, there's lots of discussion around use models, especially once you get into autonomous vehicles, how do we make sure that, that we keep track of how the device is, is performing, its general overall health, and, and make sure that when it does come to a point where it does need replacing, we know about that up, up front. So with all these technologies tied together, they may seem like kind of individual technology areas, but actually you, you can tie them all together and the data that we can pull from all of these different technologies kind of really helps build a, a complete picture of the, the device and the system. And I think this goes to the one of the discussion points around the, the GAAC and how do the end customers perceive the data that we can now produce from our chips and actually what data do they require? So I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on where you see this whole data requirement going, I know it's still a little bit undefined today and we still hear customers saying, well, we're not really quite sure what what data we require and and that type of thing. I don't know if you have any thoughts on on the whole data side of things. So my earlier mention of compliance needs and the value addition, as both of those streams mature, the value that that data could provide and what data, what kind of data, who owns it and how do they have to provide it, and what that means, all of that would become more and more clear. Now, once again, we need to perhaps you know reflect on certain other parts of the whole digital economy as to where the value derived from data is used very well. Well, some of the big tech companies are very good at this. And I mean, how perhaps anything you would take from search engines to shopping habits, and I don't have to mention names, and our office productivity to a number of other big tech solutions that we have, and a lot of that software-driven kind of data generation and utility that, that we see. So as more and more chips become part of the consumer, but also the wider digital economy, as they become more and more open to configuration, more accessible, more and more customized, and that ability to generate data out of it as such because much more and more accessible, I think that validation would grow. The question really here is that, how do you demonstrate that? So we've got certain projects, I, I go back to our project, 
that was an example of it. You mentioned safety, security, and reliability. I think, once again, there is no point detangling those. Increasingly, a number of metrics would overlap across those features and areas. And so it's important that the tool chain that you offer to your customers and the ecosystem reflects that as well. It's more and more integrated into the life cycle. I think the only other thing I would say is that very often over the last 30 odd years, if you see, certainly in the consumer space, how that value addition has been driven, the visibility of some of the examples I gave earlier from a search engine to an online e-commerce kind of marketplace and so on, that visibility lends itself to a lot of creativity and that kind of consumer-led demand. We need to educate the end user more and more. But equally, it's, it's not so much about education. It's also about awareness in the sense that it's also about that visibility and that direct control of what perhaps they would want and they could do. So I can choose an operating system for my infotainment system, uh, for my infotainment on a vehicle these days. You know, this wasn't what people were doing 10 years ago, let's say. At some point, would they be able to choose their silicon? (laughs) Would they be able to choose their chips? Would that be something that would perhaps drive that capability as to, and that could be something that we could see, you know, what kind of a modular world could be enabled in which it's open to customization. So let me give an example. I know that in the automotive industry, in certain circles, there is this debate about how we make these platforms much more sustainable. So it could be that an automotive platform as a, as, a, as a vehicle, as a metal, piece of metal, could be far more sustainable and made to last much longer. But it's the electronics on it that perhaps could be made available and the services that it could enable could be made available in a way where it could vary. So the same vehicle from the same OEM and the exact same vehicle may have different features for me than it may have for you. So... We've seen examples where, you know, you could pay for those features. What we're seeing now is the the automotive industry arguing that, exploring that perhaps it's the digital elements and certain components that could be refreshed. So we don't have to go back and build new vehicles. We could see an evolved kind of a platform or refreshed platform. Once again, there are sustainability drivers, which we shouldn't, you know, step away from. And so that's one example. But yeah, I I think there's a more complex picture emerging and the role of data there, of course, you know, would be key. The point you just touched on, the the software-defined car, is a whole nother topic. I think that's that's at least another hour discussion about what what does a software-defined car look like and what are all the implications. So I, I think at that point, many thanks for your time today. It's been really good, as always, talking to you. I look forward to kind of next time we get together and thank you very much and, and I hope you've had a hope you had a good time. Thank you, Lee. Uh, it's been uh, very useful, I think, um, you know, touching some of those themes and I look forward to more collaborations, not just with yourself, but also uh, anyone, everyone who's um, out there. Mm-hmm.